Laugh it up, fuzzball. Uh, well, you know, uh, we're not actually doing the uh, intro Star Wars quote. Oh. Uh, you triggered the theme music. Oh, sorry, sorry. We need to. We they get too adventurous, these guys. We need to stop paying them. That's very true. Um, yeah, this is kind of the reason I said that is because this is one of those out of season, you know, X Files podcasts. But you know, sort of. An, what the hell am I talking about? This is an episode <laughs> from Beyond the Season. <laughs> yes, exactly. See the strange mysteries within. Yes. Um, <laughs> So this is a completely unrehearsed chat. The past couple of episodes are done by myself because um, I had a couple of ideas of how to talk about writing with, with chords and the Roman numeral system. And uh, and then I did another one last week about how to like structure a song, writing a song live on the podcast. And they now, were both very good episodes. Oh, cheers. Thank you. And Two thumbs up. One out of one. And now we're doing a sort of chat, what, like based around lyrics, I guess. I think that the initial idea was to do, talk about something to do with lyrics, but neither Roger can, or I can remember exactly what we agreed, so we're just <laughs> going to have a bit of a chat. <laughs> there, was like, there was a moment, like two weeks ago, where we spoke about this, and we were both like, yeah, that's a good idea for a show. Okay, we'll do that in two weeks. And now it's two weeks later, and it's like, we're on the phone together, talking into the mics. It's um, like, we didn't write anything down. Ugh. <laughs> oh, we're recording remotely again as well, aren't we? Uh, yes, of course, yeah. The lockdown is still in effect. Um Boo his corona. Yeah. What have you been doing but, to kind of keep, you know, spirits up? Um, just keeping busy, really. Like, uh, I was talking about this uh, with a friend of mine on Facebook the other day. I was sort of just checking in, making sure you're all right. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's all fine. It's quite easy to get depressed. It's quite inspiring to see you keep going with so many projects. So I just said to her, like... Oh no! Literally, the only thing I did was just message all of my muso friends, ask for projects, and gave myself far too much to do. <laughs> like I ended up with like um, I ended up with like five or six projects by my count, which none of them are going to get finished. Uh, but some of them will have progress, so you know it's fine. Actually, one of them will get finished because it is uh, your Beatles project. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like that is going to be really exciting when it when it's finished. I mean, it's exciting now, but. I'm kind of doing a, you know, Roger Heathers and Friends Beatles cover project, which is really mostly a fun thing to keep everyone, all my music friends, kind of like amused and busy and contributing to to something. Um, and it's sounding pretty cool. It's going to be kind of like lo-fi and stuff, but um, you've done a couple of like instrumental tracks for me to sing on, which is a completely new thing for us, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, normally I contribute instruments to uh, your recordings if you ever have me on. So, for example, Ginny, Cosmo Kramer. Um, uh, I've completely forgotten the name of the one off Winter Tape 8. Um... It's not something I'd like, is it? We got a good finger. Yeah, you do play on that, I think. You play on something that I... Excuse me, it's something that I'd like... And Promises. Of course, yeah. Remember we tracked like, Promises. Because we did Promises right after an episode. Yeah. Which is fun. <laughs> and it was. And I like that recording because, like, when I listen to that, I go, that wasn't, like, this painstakingly crafted, like, oh, we need to choose this and choose this. That was just you and me, like, okay, right, we're still recording, so we may as well just do it. And, like, I think that it has that feeling to it, which I like. 
Yeah, but my point is that I'm normally playing like an additional instrument on your recordings. Yeah. To the point of like playing bass on Maybe I'm Bored. But like this is the first time where I'm in control of the music and you're in control of the vocals. I think you will be playing a couple of bits of guitar on like uh, one of them or two of them possibly. But like for the most part, it's my responsibility is like, oh my God, please don't fuck this up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's um, it's cool because now you've got like, well, you're starting to get like a, a home recording system, you know. So like now that's a possibility. It's going to be, well, not it's going to be. It's really cool to like, because you've done "She Loves You" and "Lady Madonna" for me to sing on and play a little bit of guitar on "Lady Madonna," and uh, yeah, it's, a lot it's, of guitar on "Lady Madonna." It's one of those songs I sort of suggested. Oh, what if I do this version of it? And then I realized halfway through recording it. Man, there's a lot of instrumental breaks in this song. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I jumped in. I was like, hey, I'll play guitar solos. I love, the, I love the opportunity to play guitar solos on other people's stuff. For some reason, it feels a lot more like uh, like I've got a license to rather than giving myself a guitar solo. It's, also, it's more fun because like, I'm playing over your changes and stuff. Well, it's not my changes, really, because Paul McCartney wrote the song, but, you know, whatever. Are you um... telling me you didn't write Lady Madonna? <laughs> Sadly not, no. I was going to say, I was going to see if I could get away with it next season. (laughs) Yeah. Although, to bring this back to lyrics, uh, Lady Madonna is an interesting example of a song that's got a Days of the Week theme. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, Which uh, I think the only day it doesn't include is Saturday, and Paul McCartney said in an interview that the reason that it's not Saturday is because that's the time that the people in the song go out and have fun. That's the time they go out and have fun. Oh, interesting. I I never really know. Obviously, you hear the the names of the week, uh, the days of the week in the song, but it's interesting to think of a song as like, oh, that's like the the structural theme of of the actual lyrics themselves. The fact that it goes through the days of the week. You sort of see that as well. With ELO um, Discovery album Diary of Horace Wimp. It has that bit of uh at the end where it goes monday tuesday wednesday and it skips out sunday for some reason yeah um (laughs) maybe just like the way it sounded or something but speaking of that for some reason that reminds me of uh, a couple of ones which i really like lyrically which are kind of they have a what the hell's the word i've got the word on the tip of my brain kind of like it's not a conceit do you know what I mean? Like a, a thing it does. Anyway, I'm talking about... Um, like a, a theme that gets referenced throughout the lyrics. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Some kind of like framework for the lyric to be based around. Um, the first one, they're both telephone ones. Uh, New York Telephone Conversation by Lou Reed's really good. Um, and then the other one is Telephone Line by ELO. Oh, yeah. That's a great song is Telephone Line. I just... If ever we were in a band together, I would desperately want to cover Telephone Line. Oh, me too. Totally. It, it's It's... Probably one of my favorite ELO songs, if not my favorite. And but it's, uh, uh, yeah, but Telephone Line actually shares something in common with uh, both "Hello" by um, Adele and "Hello" by Lionel Richie. It's just you know the idea of starting your lyrics with a "Hello," which implies the start of a formal conversation or a conversation that may be taking place over the phone or something, which is sort of a really good mood setter, I think. Totally agree. There's another one by Todd Rundgren called Hello, It's Me, where it starts out with um, Hello, It's Me, I've thought about you for a long, long time, which is, again, in that vein. And it's a really cool thing. I think it shows the mark of a 
a, a songwriter who's already tried a few different approaches and goes like, oh, okay, wow, I've got a cool idea of how to twist it. In the same way that in um, She Loves You by the Beatles, which we just spoke about, which is on the cover album, like they they change the perspective of instead of I love you, she loves me, they're talking in third person, she loves you and she told me this and they're relaying it as, as the uh, middleman. It's a technique that's... Um not used very often is a reported conversation. Because mm. quite a lot of default song, uh, songwriters will tend to stick to either like first-person or third-person narration. Mm. In that, uh, you know, it's either I am feeling this for you, do you feel this for me? Or, you know, Sally felt this way for Jenny, Jenny felt this way for Sally, what did they mean for each other? And things like that. Mm, mm. Um it's very rare that you have that. I think She Loves You is the only example I can really think of where it's like, no, she loves you, but you hurt her. But she, you know, wants you to apologise to her. Mm. Now go off and get yourself sorted, mate. Yeah, like, which is really cool because it gives the songwriter himself this, like, separate entity voice. It's quite smart when you think about it in terms of, like, linguistically and that. I mean... That's probably not the level the Beatles are thinking of it. It just was probably something different. But when you look back on it, you realise why it works. But it's having a reported conversation really helps sort of give the lyrics sort of some sort of purpose or some sense of character, which is the same thing when I mentioned like the telephone starting with hello. Mm. That immediately gives, if you view like the I in the song as like a character or a narrator or some sort, it immediately gives them a purpose. Like, you know, obviously they felt compelled to you know, ring up whoever it is they're speaking to, now explore the reasons why this character would be doing that. Yeah, definitely. I think having a setup, especially when you're writing lyrics, is like a really important thing. Um, I've mentioned it a few times now, so I won't kind of go into the full thing, but having an if at the beginning of a verse, um, you know, if something happens, like the next thing, both in terms of like letting you write to continue is is having the then, but it also puts in the listener's head, Oh, right, what's happening then? There seems to be a problem or, like, something that's unresolved. And that's just good, you know, impetus to keep writing, really. Well, it's kind of like um, a good thing for just drama and stories in general. I mean, that's mostly what lyrics tend to be is stories set to music. Most of the time it happens that they're true stories, mostly impressionistic stories, but they're still stories. And that, like, a character needs to overcome some sort of obstacle or goal or something needs to change. Like, if you had a story where there were, like, four perfectly content people sitting in a room, mm-hmm. it, would be very, very, it would be a very boring story. So you need sort of some adversity or some obstacle to overcome, which is, like, there was an interview with uh, Roger Taylor from Queen. He always used to say, like, um, anger and love are two really strong emotions to write from and when you consider that in terms of like obstacles and everything yeah uh you know obviously if you're angry you're angry for a reason because someone or something has happened to upset you so that's an obstacle to overcome and in most love songs it tends to be like pining after someone who may not notice you exist maybe going out with someone else or maybe they do like you but neither of you can actually say something so that's creating obstacles and drama and lyric it's always fun I think that's a great point. And it, it's in almost like it puts in my mind that there's a few different like archetypes or roles you can take on when you go into writing lyrics. It makes me think of um, I saw an interview with the Lemon Twigs once uh, where they made a point which I was like, 
oh wow i've listened to their music for ages now and i never noticed this which was uh michael was talking about brian's um because they're a couple of brothers from long island um uh, who who write together uh, or like they write their own songs but like they record together so brian was saying no michael was saying about brian he often writes as someone he would like to be rather than who he actually is, like a kind of idealized version. And it's kind of like writing as as the sage. And it can be it can be done in kind of a way where it's it can sound pretentious or it can sound like a bit aloof. But I think the way he does it and the way a few other people do it, where you talk in terms of like who you'd like to be, especially if there's some element of vulnerability in there. Um you know, I could be this, I could be that, this is what I want to project for my future. It's still kind of a problem, but it's like, if you write as, what am I trying to say, the person you would like to be, it always allows you to kind of, like, move towards that in some sort of a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of more about, like, trying to actualize yourself to align with your goals, to put some wankery words in there. Um, mm. But I get that. That's kind of a lot of songs that I tend to write when they're kind of, you know oh, everything's down, everything's miserable, but I'm going to continue and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, is always me, like, writing, like, ideally, I would like to do this. Right, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I'm going to get started and motivated and I'm going to go out and take chances and then a week later I'm still being lazy and being cynical and sad and everything. Mm. But it's writing is the idealised version of yourself. It, you know, gives you some impetus, like, you know, to actually maybe make a start on this kind of stuff. Definitely. And I think I think having some element of playing up situations, exaggerating situations for just for the sake of your lyrics can be really cool. Like, I mean, uh, you know me pretty well, Declan. I'm, I'm not like someone who has like... No, I don't. I've never met you in my life. <laughs> I'm not someone who has like a, a like very prolif- prolific, like a, um, a very involved love life. I'm not always constantly, constantly dating or anything like that. I'm quite a shy person, but... When I like somebody, like even if I go on like a date with somebody, and like I'll write about that, but I'll exaggerate it up to be like, I'll talk about like the potential of what it could turn into and all this stuff, even if it never does, which it never does. <laughs> um, it's like that that potential can be amped up and and like can be milked for lyrics. You could so tell I I I host a songwriting podcast and and write for it because like any date. I have set up, I'm like, this could be a song. <laughs> <laughs> there could be a tune in this somewhere. <laughs> uh, I've, I have a similar thing, but because I don't go out on any dates, I just end up with crippling loneliness and writing songs about that. But that's, the, that's like... <laughs> <laughs> like Ghost in the Sheets is just kind of like, you know, a uh, song from a while back. It's just like, okay, I'm lonely. I know, I'll write a jolly tune about it. <laughs> but that that song was so good because it was, I think I've said this probably on the podcast verbatim, but it was so honest and it had a vulnerability to it as well as kind of having that sort of like brilliant Declan-esque uh, uh, kind of like quasi-humour to it. Do you know what I mean? That thing you do where you'll have like a kind of like a bit of a nod and a wink in a song. Um, thank you for the co- thank you for the compliments. The check is in the post. <laughs> thank you. It's uh, thirty pounds this time, please. Uh, oh, damn. <laughs> I don't know. I can afford this much longer. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's like you can write about 
anything really can you like it doesn't have to be like oh you need to be in love to write you need to be sad to write you need to be joyous to write it's like anything can be so, mined anything can form the basis for a lyric but also lyrics don't necessarily have to be autobiographical yeah which is an interesting thing it's like Kurt Cobain said like when I refer to to myself or I in a song no wait he says when I when I refer to I in a song I'm not necessarily talking about myself I could be talking about anybody else which is quite a it really broadens the canvas of what you can talk about in a song well it's um, kind of yeah it's almost like seeing the narrator or the vocalist in a song as kind of an actor like if someone for example was to play Adolf Hitler when they say, oh, um, when they sort of spout his views, they don't necessarily, like, actually agree with the views. And the same thing can be said in terms of, like, writing lyric. Like, just because the person who is narrating the song says this does not necessarily mean that is the actual view of the artist, if that makes sense. Of course. Like, there, there can be an element of, like, you know, you can write, you can sit there and write a poem about how awful it, is to be in a concentration camp and you have never been in one because you know you weren't there but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't write about it you can write about whatever you want well i was going to go more down the route of uh tommy by the who you've got because that's essentially a musical you've got many songs in there that are kind of like i'm your wicked uncle ernie or you know i'm the gypsy the acid queen oh okay they're all being portrayed by members of the who but, you know, I'm pretty sure Roger Daltrey isn't an acid queen, so far as I'm aware. Yeah. Uh, if you if you have heard Contrary, please do let me know. <laughs> it's um, it's kind of like that sort of, at least the um, initial proposition from Paul for um, Sgt. Pepper's. Like, let's forget we're the Beatles and let's write as if we're this other band, you know, like... You know, not about ourselves necessarily, but but from these characters' points of view, these Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club bands. Yeah, those uh, the two Sergeant Pepper songs, and with a little help from my friends, are really good examples of like becoming an alter ego essentially. I mean, doesn't Beyonce do something similar with Sasha Fierce? Yeah, or am the, I getting that wrong? I yeah, you're right. There's like it expresses like a certain yeah like a character but I, I think that's more like a certain side of her like the like the fierce feminine in, in her or something mm. there's also um there's a few there's a few good examples in in the hip-hop world which i've always found so interesting and it's something i'd like to do a version of myself one day like uh you ever heard of uh, have i told you about mf doom uh yes i have heard of doom um i think you've actually played me oh what's the one uh, oh. I don't want to tell you. Is it the album? Guess. Is it the album Mad Villainy? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's just like Mad Lib, uh, MF Doom. I always want to say Doctor Doom. Well, I can see why. That's that's what the um the character's kind of roughly based on based in the first off, place. Yeah. yeah. But like with with MF Doom, he was just uh, when he was in his twenties, he was just this you know, uh, straight-ahead rapper called Zevlov X, and then uh, he was homeless for a while and then became this character, MF Doom, who who speaks very differently, has a completely different vocabulary, and then from there um, did projects... Does he speak to himself in third person? Please tell me he does. Oh, <laughs> man. Like, Doom does not care for these. <laughs> it's cool, because like, there's a few skits from the actual Doctor Doom, uh, I don't know, TV series or whatever, like uh, Fantastic the Fantastic Four. Four. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but then he's also got characters like Victor Vaughn, which he did later on, which is like a younger, more like uh, sort of like full of the spark of I've got to go out and get money type of uh, mentality. Then he's also got um, King Ghidorah, who's like a god. He raps as a god. And like the idea of like taking on these different things must be so creatively... Um, you know, engaging to go like, oh, okay, cool. I can write now as as a god or as a, as a younger man or whatever it is. I would love to write like some sort of musical based thing, just so you could write all of these different characters and try and give them all their own songs and everything. And uh, it would take up too much time, though. It does seem quite time consuming when you consider it, and that. Also, thinking up of a good story that's worth it. <laughs> yeah, true. I feel like it's one of those things where. Like once you get settled in your life in terms of like okay I've got a I've got a solid place to live now you know financially I'm doing okay all this stuff I've I've done my fair share of solo projects or whatever or band projects and now I'm kind of steady and there's not like this kind of weird fluctuation in in oh what's going to happen next in my life to some degree I think it might be a cool idea to go right okay now I'm going to try and write as somebody else to just kind of like at least like respark it. Mm. That could be that could be something interesting to try like, as a challenge on a podcast one time. That's a good idea, actually. Who would we write as, though? Um, we tried to write as each other before. I think we got Sam involved in that one, and we did like a three-way switch round. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, I'm not sure. We would have to give that more consideration. Yeah, Although, definitely. Although, that is kind of something that I've ended up doing a little bit in... Uh, one of my songs, uh, Did You See This When We Met? Which uh, is written more or less from the viewpoint of Amelie from the film Amelie. Oh, yeah, of course. I remember that now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I did the same with that song 21500. I wrote that from the perspective of, of all people, Esty Heim from the band Heim. <laughs> because that was based on uh, something she wrote about... Um, going to see prince once wasn't it yeah that was just that was after very prince shortly died. after he died yeah what year was that when all those people died all those great 2016 wow god started off with bowie god we are living in funny times i mean i'm sure like every generation thinks oh we live because they say every generation believes they live in the, in the apocalypse but there are some like weird things about this time where it's like australia's catching fire then america and then the whole world stops going out um, yeah, it is odd, the, isn't it? the 2020s started as I think they mean to continue. Oh God, don't say that. I'm not staying indoors for another. <laughs> I, the thing is, like, you hear it, like, oh, it'll be another three weeks, and then we could all go out. And then you hear some people go, "There's not going to be any public meetings until July of 2021." Like, oh my God. Hmm. It's a new normal. Yeah, it's weird. That bloody Corona infects everything. I've just completely derailed us from talking about lyrics. I've just realised that. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I've been debating writing a song recently. Like, I think I mentioned uh, on one of the previous episodes that I went down to Cornwall just, like, literally the week before lockdown started and came back up uh, to Bristol. Mm. But in that week I was in Cornwall, I was, you know, down with my mum and everything, and, like, we always make an effort to go out and do touristy things. Mm. And literally everywhere we went to was like the last day they were open uh oh. to the point that when i got back to bristol and i went back to work only went back to work for a day and then we were furloughed 
So, like, literally yeah. everywhere that I went for that week was just shutting down. There was a great song idea in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. But it's, but it's just a case of, like, finding the right words, finding the right rhythms, sort of finding the through line of it. Yeah, definitely. I think I I always I go back to this thing that I went to um, Truro College uh, when I was younger and I studied popular music. This was before I did the sound engineering course. And we had this uh, lecturer called Russell Milner, who was a really good songwriter in his own right. And he would he would do the songwriting class. It was like one of the best classes of the week, as you can imagine, I would think. And <laughs> he was talking about like lyric writing ones. And he was saying when his dad passed away he was obviously distraught and then a, a couple of days after the funeral he tried to sit down with his, his guitar still in still very much in that emotional place of like you know loss and grief and mourning and tried to sit and write a song about it you know to in honor of his dad and he said it just didn't really come and he said what helped was to just leave the guitar for like a couple of months and he said at one point spontaneously a couple of months later after going through the actual process of mourning and grieving he came back to the guitar and he could write this full-fledged song for his father um and it's in the point he was making was that sometimes you can't write right there in the heat of the moment but you have to let time pass um and maybe it's the same with the corona thing because it seems like you know despite all the tragedy of it it seems pregnant with ideas of like what to write about and how it affects you, but it's like we're so in the middle of it, maybe it's not possible yet. Well, it's kind of interesting you say that. You sort of need to give the brain time to sort of process uh, the most rational response to a lot of this sort of stuff. Uh, mm. Like, for example, I think this is one of the very early weekly songs that I didn't end up showing publicly because I, this is before we started the podcast. But there was that song I wrote, if you remember, about... Um, uh, my nana's funeral uh my uh paternal grandmother and seeing my dad break down and cry like which was literally the only time i've ever seen him in my life do that yeah and just like you know i would not have, i remember it affecting me at that time both you know obviously the loss but also seeing you know my dad cry and I was not ready to process that until like several, several, several months later, at which point that song comes out. Yeah. Or sort of like flows. So you do, for sort of big stuff that you think is going to be pregnant with possibility, you do need to give your brain time to sort of cope, rationalize, put things in order. That's a good point to make about loss in general is the fact that, you know, once if you lose somebody, it's like not putting pressure on yourself to feel something right in that moment, which I think, you know, a lot of people do. Mm. But it, it, your brain does need time to process. It's it's a wondrous thing, but it is not the fastest thing on earth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But um, are there any songs that come to mind for you where you go, that is an incredible set of lyrics? Uh, most of them. Uh, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I should have done my research beforehand. Um, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. I just, uh, I mean, it's, I didn't really either. In terms of like, I always kind of think Devavana lyrics are really kind of cool, but mostly in the sort of sense. I think we've touched on this before on regular episodes, but for me, the fact that they managed to be so specific and yet so universal at the same time, like. Mm. Uh, 
Like, uh, you have lyrics, it was 2004 when I'm not mistaken when the poison hit my lips and I haven't looked back since. You know, back when my hair was long and Phil was still alive, we spent our weeks trying to speak to the girls who left us weak and everything. Like, they're very specific references to points in time and of, you know, the writer's uh, life, but you can always, like, you can identify with the emotions or, like, the sort of moments in that song, I feel. Yeah, that's always on Phantom Pier, by the way. Check it out; it's great. It's that thing of like uh, that which is personal is universal, mm. and there is definitely a lot of truth to that. I mean, it's almost like you can write about your own personal experience, but what you are experiencing, whether it's love or you know fear or shame or loss or whatever it is, you are not the first person to experience that, and you're not going to be the last. So, if you write a song about how much you love someone. That's going to be so applicable to everyone else's life, especially, I think, I mean, it can go both ways, but my my personal approach is, like, if I'm relatively vague about the actual details, then someone else can, like, fill in those gaps with their own personal life narrative. On the other hand, what you were just saying about Death Havana works equally well, but in a different way, where it's, like, they're giving you the facts. Well, not the facts, you know what I mean, but, like, the specific details of, like, this is when it was, this is what happened, and, you know, this is who we were. And then you can go, I can really see that. And it paints, like, a picture in the same way that, like, a, a good film or television series does, where it doesn't leave it open-ended. It's like, no, these are the characters, these are their names, and then you can still put your own narrative on it. You can sort of still relate to the experience of... Um, the experience of being re- uh, relayed to you, essentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's kind of like the mark of longevity. Like if you can still relate to a set of lyrics after a set of time, it's a test of time, essentially. Um, Mm, Definitely. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but I do like the lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody just because they're so sort of at once simple and obtuse. Yeah, I always, I always point to that one as a song. I. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where if you had to pick a top three songs ever, Bohemian Rhapsody would be one of them for me because of it ticks all the boxes in terms of structurally and musically and all that stuff. But also lyrically, I watched this video, I'm not sure if you've seen it too, um, where these, um, I think it's like Oxford professors of, of literature, the best in the, in the land. They're trying to, try to decode the lyrics. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, that, you know, quite admirably, they're saying this could mean this, this could mean this poetically. But I think my personal take on it, for what it's worth, is it's just really, uh, it just works with the music. And it seems to be the words that just came when Freddie was writing that song. Um, It's almost like, uh, how do I put this? It's like the lyrics themselves match the tone of what he was writing on the piano. So I I don't want to die. I sometimes wish I'd never been bored at all. It's such a potent lyric. That's such a strong with what's line. going on at that. Uh, yeah. And what's going on with that in, in the song at that point, it's like nothing else would really, really have, have done it. And uh, it, that's the whole thing of like just trusting as you go through the song sort of thing. But he, yeah, he was brilliant on that. Yeah. Well, I know that the middle bit is, essentially a lot of nonsense because that song is kind of like three songs stitched together because they thought that may have been the last album like the opera that that one's off so it's like a rock song a piano ballad and an opera muckabout that was sort of melded together but i love how disparate all the lyrics seem to be and yet they still work to create some sort of continuous flow 
Yeah, so like definitely. you've got like the sort of sad, almost mournful lyrics of like the two ballady bits. You've got the very defiant, so you think you can stop me and spit in my eye, uh, bits of the rock section. And then you've just got the mad opera section. But it, yeah. but it all kind of makes sense in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, it's if you look at it in the most like objective terms, like not musically, not anything like that, it's just an amazing feat that a human being or a group of human beings by the time of the final product managed to compose this thing, you know? Mm. Like what an incredible achievement. I love that song. It's so good. But I love the fact that the middle of it, uh, everyone can remember it and it's utter gibberish. I think this is something that sort of also <laughs> sort of needs bearing in mind when talking about writing lyrics. Like you can write something deep and philosophical like Imagine or something. But you can mm. also just write, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's fine too. Yes, definitely. It's like I, I think one of the main things I like about music, which um, which draws me to it because of something... Something in the way I think. Something is, uh... in the way he <laughs> thinks. It's like I I kind of I'm kind of drawn to things that don't make a lot of sense. Um, so the uh, what I'm saying is like the fact that the most the best selling financially you know uh, albums and singles of all time um, are a little bit psychedelic and a little bit weird. And a song like Bohemian Rhapsody, which on paper, if you tried to market it in, in, you know, in a financial sense, probably wouldn't be, uh, seen as a commodity, but the fact that you look back and you go, oh, wow, it's got billions of, uh, streams. It's been bought loads and loads of times. It's, it's a bestseller and it is what it is. It's so strange. It's got that nonsense middle section and it still has done well. It just speaks to like, what people like about music um, and and that sort of need we have for something that's a bit off the wall, you know? <laughs> well, that's sort of very sort of tied into what I think separates writing for poetry and particularly lyrics away from, like, writing story and prose is that you can write oddball stories that, you know, use weird language and things to sort of disorientate the reader. Uh, but with music, you only ever need to speak to an emotional truth. So your lyrics can be as weird as uh, you like. Like, for example, uh, <laughs> Hendrix, uh, Voodoo Child's Slight Return. I stand up next to a mountain and I chop it down with the edge of my hand. No one has ever done that. But <laughs> everyone can sort of... <laughs> everyone sort of knows what he's getting at, if you know what I mean. No, totally. Like, that's it. It's very clear, yeah. like, the intent, particularly when paired with, you know, the fantastic guitar work in that song. Totally. That's the thing. People get the intent, the, the intent, and they get what he's getting at. And that's the thing. You know, they, they say um, people won't remember what you said or, you know, anything like that. They'll remember how you made them feel. And when you look at, like, Hendrix records, like Axis Boulder's Love, or you look at something like, uh, you know, or like Abbey Road or something, you don't necessarily, like look at those albums and go hmm i liked the bit when they said she came in through the bathroom window because of this this and this you like it because of the general vibe that it's remembered for like pet sounds has a certain feeling to it and it's like it kind of goes beyond language itself it's just like well, it's, if something's well composed it's not like to say that there's not thought behind it it's just not necessarily like literary thought but to go back to um she came in through the bathroom window which is one of my favorite beatles songs like mm. uh it's the pairing of words with music that properly conveys the 
intent, if that makes sense. So you've got this sort of very chill, very major, she came in through the bathroom window, all that section. Like, uh, it's like a description of this person. And then, like, you move into this more minor section with, didn't anybody tell her? Which, because you're moving to a minor, which is sort of more unstable. And then you're adding mm. this uncertainty in the lyrics. It's just, you know, it's very good pairing of, like, changing of musical mood with changing of the lyrical mood. I totally get what you mean. I, I had a moment once where I've heard um, A Day in the Life by the Beatles so, so many times. But I had this one moment when I was, like, know, 20 or something, and I was walking through this car park. I still remember the car park. It was the car park at Wharfside in Penzance, just um, on near the harbour. I was listening to... Um, to a day in the life and it just suddenly hit me that more than any other song i can think of the lyrics and the melody match the chords perfectly every line goes up where it should and down where it should in in order to match what's being said um, even to the point and, where the two sections of the song are in two different keys for the two different feels because yeah. like john's bit is in g and paul's bit is in e I mean, you take, you know, the first three, I read the news today, oh boy. It's like, it's so conversational. Oh boy. It's almost like, oh boy. It like, it matches the actual like tonality of what he would say, even if he wasn't singing it, which I think is, and the fact that he probably did that completely intuitively without actually thinking about it is, is very impressive. You want to kill people who are so intuitively good and steal their juicy, juicy talent. That's what Mark Chapman tried to do. Is it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where are you going with that one, Roger? <laughs> I don't quite know. <laughs> oh. But then you, like, John Lennon is someone who's a very good example of, like, a very flexible lyricist in the way that he'll write these sort of very sort of formal, like, I, the lyrics to Imagine, I always feel, are very, like, formal in terms of, like, yeah. Imagine There Is No Country and no religion, no heaven or hell, you know, all of this sort of stuff. But then, like, particularly during the later time of the Beatles, he's also, like, very keen to work in his, you know, his particular uh, lexicon that, you know, being a Leverpudlian gives him. So, like, feared blues and everything, and um, even things like, oh, boy. You can hear a lot on the anthology takes a lot of John Lennon like going into an exaggerated Liverpudlian accent and putting in like words that would be in his vernacular, which I always love it when you can sort of tell where a sort of singer is from, not just by their accent, but sort of by the words that they're choosing to use. Yeah, totally, totally. I think uh, it it makes it very likable to listen to. But I mean, what you're saying about John Lennon is is so true. His versatility. Um, I mean, a, a couple of points that I thought of was like, he goes from writing about, you know, the heartbreak of his relationship with his mother and losing his mother, um, to, you know, uh, uh, I am the walrus to, uh, you know, just, just all over very, very psychologically deep with no frills. And then you have things like imagine, which are kind of like, almost like, uh, like Zen Cohen's in, in in a sense, like uh, prompts to think differently. Mm. I mean, it's just so, so much stuff. And also the other thing is, I think he was so influenced by what was happening in his, in his life and especially the musicians around him. Like, 
I mean, of course, you had the rock and roll element too, where he would like inject that into his lyrics. But like, I think when he was writing around Paul or with Paul, but particularly like um, in the Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane era um, and then on, I think he had that element of like friendly competition where he almost pushed himself further than he would normally go to write not only chordally but lyrically more complex uh, arrangements and stuff. And then that kind of like backed off in the 70s when he started like kind of writing more simplistic songs, you know? That's kind of one of the good things about sort of not being the only songwriter in a band is that you suddenly got someone to fire off and that was a very direct correlation in the Beatles a lot of the time where you have things like, okay, I'm going to write a song with on chord, says Paul, so will I, says John. I'm going to write a song about my childhood, says John, so will I, says Paul. Yeah. Yeah. which you suddenly lose once they all become solo artists, which I imagine is why George Harrison probably had the strongest start because he was just used to writing on his own anyway about the need for, like, prompts from the other. Uh, That's a really good point. But then you also have that in other examples of, um, like, multiple songwriter bands. Like, uh, there's a couple of songs on uh, Breakfast in America by the... I think it's Rick and Roger, the writers in that band. And Roger Hodgson's definitely one, but yeah. Uh, but you have like songs in there which are sort of similar themes. Like you have things like casual conversations, for example. Like there's a sort of theme about communication at some points of the album, where like you know, because that's the time where the relationships in the band were getting a bit more fraught. So you have uh, multiple songs there that deal with like being the outsider or not communicating or not listening, which is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that sort of like, uh, what do you call it? Sort of like a variety of lyrical topics and approaches creates a good discography. I think some of the uh, most interesting bands are the ones who write about a bunch of different stuff. And we we mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody earlier, which is arguably quite um, a abstract at some points uh, set of lyrics. And then you have other songs that Freddie wrote, um, where it's just very much to the point. Like body language is a good example. Like there is no mistaking what that song is about. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, and uh, if people have heard the show before, they know that one of my favorite bands is Ween, um, W-E-E-N, not to be confused with Queen. And, both are good. Uh, both are good. And, but, I mean, Ween just go from, this is what I love about them, these sincere love songs, you know, with no jokes to... Uh, snort the coke off my dick, you know, <laughs> like, within like the same. It runs album. the gamut. <laughs> yeah, totally. And um, it's, and I love that, you know, uh, especially like on a, an album like La Cucaracha, you have songs like uh, uh, Balloon, which uh, its refrain is, "Friends go on in life, friends go on forever." You know, this beautiful ballad, and the next song is, "You're looking like a bag of fat." <laughs> <laughs> Like, I love that. I love that difference and that distinction. There's something about um, it's like the genre roulette thing, but just on a lyrical basis. Well, lyrically, you sort of get that a little bit with things like uh, early Chili Peppers records, where you get songs like "Suck My Kiss," and then you get things like "Under the Bridge." It's yeah, just definitely. like, hang on, these both come from the same album. What's what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that kind of represents like I've been thinking about this recently. Like I think. One of the big reasons the Beatles were so popular in the era they were popular is because they were such likable people with such 
such a variety of personalities. And I think if you can reflect that in the tracks on a 10 or 12 track album, where you showcase, whether you're a solo artist or a band or whatever, you showcase like, I can be humorous, I have some psychological troubles which I, I'm being vulnerable about sharing, and also I'm doing this in my life, I'm doing this. It's like you kind of get to know a person, whereas if every song's just about the same thing, you kind of box yourself in to a certain extent. Well, I think this is kind of one of the sort of better things to come out of the punk movement overall is that it sort of helped reinforce this idea of, like, your music relating more to who the actual performer is or, like, them both being of the same... Uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Like, it's explicitly tying one to the other where it's not so much, like, character creation, as it were, or, like, um, mm. you know, just sort of some made-up stuff because you think it would sell, like, because this is earnest, more stuff that is earnestly coming from you. You know, it's not a universal truth, but it certainly makes for some more interesting music. And I think it really helps you sort of connect more of an artist if you feel like you're getting at least an accurate representation of their personality and what they write. Definitely, definitely. I think um, that's one of the best things about this era of music that we're living in, broadly speaking, is that the charts have become a lot less of a metric than they used to be. And there are such, like, niche... Uh, groups of people who follow certain artists um and the reason that i you know in my opinion the reason these people follow these artists is for their artistic expression for their lyrical expression for the way they make their records so like the whole package whereas kind of like what you were saying about punk is so true because like in the you know even like the sort of mid 60s um and it carried on after but the mid 60s 50s 40s and especially in the era of like gershwin and stuff and irving berlin people would just write songs for other people. And if you heard somebody on the radio, you'd be hearing somebody with a nice voice, with a well-produced record, but it wouldn't necessarily be something that they wrote. And that's kind of like the Beatles were, uh, as well as Dylan and people like that, were so lauded as, like, uh, being creatives because they were, you know, uh, outwardly writing their own songs. And I think that must have been a, a thing of people like, oh, right, they really mean this stuff. It's There's a, a sincerity to it. Well, there's this great video I was watching recently about Howard Ashman writing for Disney songs, and it sort of brought up the point that in the period before you have, like, this move to connect the musician with the music more, like, to be... Or, you know, while there were still certain taboos in the real world, you had, uh, like musicians of colour, female musicians, LGBT musicians who would have to write their songs cleverly to get across their messages to sort of, um, you know, sort of express themselves while still sticking to this format that would still work in the charts, which you can sort of... Yes. It still happens today to some extent. Like, I remember the whole thing with, like, uh, for example, Sam Smith, like, uh, not being out for a while. And then mm. suddenly coming out, and then you could suddenly read back over the catalogue and sort of see, oh, yeah, that's probably what that meant. Or, like, songs come up with a different meaning. But, you know, specifically, you know, there was talking about, like, a pansy movement where you had, like, um, these fun camp songs that were all a bit of a laugh, but in reality they were trying to communicate something of the, you know, experience of being a homosexual person. And you had the same thing with, for example, uh, there's one great song called Strange Fruit, which is oh, I know the one. Which is about a lynching, but it's yeah. expressed. It is 
kind of bold, but it's also just off enough. You could pass it off as something innocent if you desperately wanted to, but like once you know what you're looking for, it's screaming it. So what, absolutely. So while you need to be really clever to write like that, what you do say about being in this era where like people are connecting more to, you know, individual artistic expression and expression of individual personality, you know, it rings true. Basically, you don't have yeah. to. You don't have to sort of write hiding anymore. Or, you know, you feel less pressure to do that. Totally, totally agree. And um, there is a couple of things. First of all, there is a sort of uh, artifice or or a, or a veneer that is used when you're writing lyrics anyway. I mean, because uh, first of all, you're not giving every single detail of... It's not a diary um, entry. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then uh, I think another thing which really leads into... Um, this sounds really morbid, but like the success of an artist is if something tragic happens to them. Somebody like Elliot Smith or Kurt Cobain, you cannot help but go back and listen to their lyrics with a whole new light. It's almost like um, the same uh, intrigue that people get from watching a, docu- a real-life documentary. Um, in the sense that you listen to Nevermind, for example, you know, on a cursory listen, you go, oh my god, I know what happened to this guy in the end, and... Let's hear the lyrics, and it gives a whole other dimension to it. I suppose you could sort of say that death canonizes an artist, and that you know their canon is complete; they can no longer contribute, and therefore you are now free to look at those lyrics or that music and try and put it into some sort of context within, you know, their lifespan. Like, uh, yeah, you know, uh, to go back to Queen because that's the example I'm most familiar with looking at, like, The Miracle and Innuendo, the albums, uh, contemporaneously while they would have been released, they probably would have just been another two Queen albums with a couple of good hits on it. But as someone who was born after Freddie died and then sort of went back and looked, I can't help but see those two albums as, you know, the band trying to get the most out of the time they've got left, which entirely changes for me what the albums are. Yeah. So, like, you know, that's an that's a set of artists. That's an artist that's been pre-canonized for me, as it were. And you, yes, totally get it. And you sort of, you could sort of see the same thing happening. I remember immediately the day Michael Jackson died, people were then beginning to look into his catalogue. You could see this as well with David Bowie. You know, the moment he died, just after releasing Black Star, and you suddenly got a complete body of work which people were now freely diving into. Mm. because you know it's complete and because black star is so concerned with like you know mortality and you know the last track is i can't give everything away Mm -hmm. and you know it's then ripe for analyzing and maybe over analyzing yeah definitely and there is again i said it was morbid but there is an enjoyment to that um to to seeing a person's full body of work and uh yeah and i i've lost my train of thought i was gonna say something but i forgot what it was but uh oh yeah no that was it um i i've just been thinking about that sort of thing like when you look at an artist who's successful i think there's always at least a couple of um interesting facts you can you can uh attach to them um you know for example uh 
interesting is probably the wrong word, but Kurt Cobain's suicide, the fact that the Beatles had the four different uh, personalities, the fact that Freddie Mercury died um, tragically, and what you were saying about that final album, or these different things, or like even something like the Lemon Twix, they're two brothers, and they live together, and what is that relationship like? And then you see them on Instagram, and like there's a certain like personality thing, which I think a lot of um, unsigned bands now, you know, who are just doing this completely DIY, they might lack to a certain extent, and um, I certainly categorise myself in that to, to, a deg- to a degree, which I mean, there's not much of a narrative attached to some unsigned artist. Like, there's you can't go, oh, that's the person who, um, I don't know, um, spent a year in hospital last year, and now they're making a record again. Like, there's a certain excitement or interest to that. And I wonder um, sometimes how much of that interest factor is played up by record labels and and A&R marketing. Um, I I imagine sometimes it's been completely uh, falsified. Well, to Um, to go back to the Beatles a second, like, um, it's... The big thing that was being advertised with them when they started out was the fact that they weren't London-centric. You know, they were these sort of rough shots from Liverpool who were deigning to come down here and try and make popular music. Like, you know, it's, yeah. that was the sort of thing before, you know, a Fab Four image took off and everything. That was the thing yeah. that was sort of really sort of driving that forward. Um, I agree to an extent, but then I feel that that's true for anybody starting out. You only sort of gain narrative once you enter the public consciousness, as as it were. And yeah. the only thing you can sort of do to make yourself interesting is sort of be yourself, as it were. Totally agree, yeah. Um, or like, yeah, I, present to yeah. yourself in the best way possible, if that makes sense. Yes, definitely. And I think that there is an element of playing up certain characteristics sometimes and... Uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, it's just an, a topic that intrigues me endlessly because it's not something I'm particularly uh, attuned to, whereas like, I imagine there's some people in marketing who work for people like Belly Union and 4AD or whoever, whatever record label, who are like, okay, we need to have an interview with this artist who's just signed with us just to talk about their lives, you know? So uh, uh, who do you know? Uh, what difficulties have you had? All that sort of thing. Um, and then how will we make that part of your story? Because I think people get attached to not just music, which is good, but also the story that goes with it. I mean, it's um, a cliche of like the sub story on programs like X Factor, Pop Idol, The Voice and things like that, which is true for a reason. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, those are definitely the uh, I think those are the ones where most people um We'll kind of like blanch it a little bit and be like, oh man, but it's just kind of hit me recently. Probably, I haven't thought about it a lot until recently. But the fact that there are, I'm looking at my record collection in front of me right now, and I can probably attribute some fact that I know about the person's life to each one, whether they're, I mean, being dead is one, you know, <laughs> um, still so, alive, know. dead, still alive, dead, <laughs> <laughs> unknown, or, or just like, oh, the carpenter's brother and sister. Um, or, you know, Karen Carpenter died of uh, really tragic circumstances. Uh, the Beatles, four likeable guys, one of whom got shot, the other one died of cancer. Um, uh, Ariel Pink records at home. I mean, even that's not a hugely interesting thing, but records at home and has this kind of like uh, loner mentality attached to him. And 
it's just interesting, really interesting how these, how these things work. Yeah. Well, to go a bit off topic, there's stuff that you can package about yourself like that. For example, the fact that you, you essentially record all your bits from home, uh, the fact that you've been in multiple projects, the fact that you do songwriting podcasts and that you study it in depth kind of thing. So there's always things to take and sort of present, as it were. Definitely. And it's like, um, it's almost like a question of, uh, have you ever heard of the concept of the Vahari window? Um, no, I have not. Uh, please explain. Well, it's this, um, it's this concept they use in counselling, um, which my dad told me about, where I think there's three. Let me see if I can remember them. There's the way you see yourself. There's the way others see you. And there's the way that you appear just in the world without any observation. And it's like, and the three are often quite disparate and different. So it's like, you know, what you were saying about how I might see myself as not having many um, sort of uh, obvious characteristics or or latches for people to latch onto. You might look at me just as a person I'm talking about and you might go, oh, well, yeah, you've got, you know, these qualities and these things are interesting. And I think it's the same for for anybody. You, you can look at any of your friends and go, oh, that's a really cool trait about, you know, Sam or, or whoever it is, you know. Mm. Um, but maybe maybe in yourself you don't see that. Maybe that's a self-esteem thing or something. I don't know. I think that's maybe just self-awareness is the most difficult thing to achieve. <laughs> yeah, especially clear self-awareness. Um it's, it's that classic thing when you hear yourself back on a tape recorder and you go, is that really me? You Homer, know, do I, really I don't speak sound like that? like that, but everyone says that when they hear themselves on a tape march. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's funny, I, I received a, like a, you know, like an audio message from somebody on Instagram yesterday and then they sent me another one saying, oh my God, I can't believe I sound like that. <laughs> and in my, my head, I was like, I was like, how often do you do you record yourself? Then I was thinking, oh, actually, most people don't record themselves speaking very often. Like, I mean, you and I hear ourselves back because we do a podcast and we edit it and all that stuff, and like we make music, so we have to hear ourselves sing. But getting over that initial like hearing your voice back on a tape recorder thing, it took me like three years to like be comfortable with that. That was an awful thing. I was like, oh man. Oh, I still hate my voice. I wish I could change it. A, Do you? Yeah, I wish I could change my voice to uh, either a really great singer like Freddie Mercury or someone who's got a really cool voice like Christopher Lee. That would be amazing. Yeah. I think if I could choose any voice I've become to more have... powerful than any Jedi, even you. <laughs> I'd go for Harry Nilsson. I've, I've thought about this recently. He's just so versatile. He's got that... He's Is this singing or like... speaking? Uh, singing. Singing voice. Um, if I, I'd have Harry Nilsson's singing voice and I'd have uh, Homer Simpson's talking <laughs> voice. <laughs> oh, sorry, I clipped the mic there. Um, <laughs> I was not expecting that. It'd be really funny. Like that'd be a fun game to like pair like a, a well-known talking voice with a well-known singing essentially voice and like go you, between the two. Essentially, what you'd be is you'd be Barney Gumble. You sort of speak like a drunker but sing like an angel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh dear! But yeah, Harry Nilsson's one of those singers where like he can't sing out of key. I mean, as far as I've heard, even on like sort of like live performances, there's no bit where you go, "Ooh, that was a bit off." It's like he opens his mouth and just sings perfect pitch. It's it's insane. Oh, 
have the similar thing with Matt Bellamy, just like really good pitch, but also insanely high and also playing killer guitar. And I think, dude, did you sacrifice all of your firstborn children <laughs> to sort of <laughs> to be able to continue to do this? Yeah, you can see where those deal with the devil stories come from, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if you are the devil and you'd like to get in contact with the Weekly Song Podcast, why not say... <laughs> <laughs> Leave us a five-star review. Nineteen and Spotify. <laughs> or a six-star review. Or a 666-star review, even though the number is actually 616. Is it? Yeah. Please explain that to me. Uh, I think there is... If you go back to the oldest translation of the Bible, like the passage where it's like, the devil has a number, and it is an earthly number, 666. It's actually 616. So... Why? Not a clue. Well, like that that's like in the original Translation, text, like yeah. Like it's 616. Yeah. If you go back to the oldest oh, Bible that we still have. Yeah. Um, which is curious. But interesting, interesting. fact as well is that um, I think because of that, uh, the Marvel Comics universe, the main universe where the comics have been running since 1960, is called 616. Oh, my God. I think they're trying to influence us. I think it's the New World Order. Marvel Satanists. <laughs> Luckily for me, I don't watch Marvel films. Uh, I was talking about the comic books, actually. Uh, don't you know anything? Uh, uh. <laughs> you imbecile. I think the Marvel films have, I think it's 16,000 as their universe number, but I'm not certain. It's even worse. It's probably the number of the devil too. Because all of the universes have obviously different numbers. So the ultimate universe is one six one six, I think. God, they're all at it. So I'm, get, really... I'm getting confusing now, and I'm wrong as well. <laughs> um, so lyrics, where were we? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. We've we've been recording for an hour and uh, ten minutes or so. Actually, that's probably not right because I recorded before we started. Uh, like, I've got about an hour an and hour seven, so. but you spent about I don't know four minutes resetting in the middle. That's true. Actually, no, we did record about the same time. We just we did start around the same time, but um, not like wrapping up, wrapping up. But um, is there anything uh, you've been listening to recently or watching that you've been uh, been into? Um. I haven't been watching an awful lot recently, I must admit. Um, although I have finally finished my album backlog and I'm working on my audio play backlog. So the most recent things I've listened to, let me just turn around so I can see my piles. Um, uh, a band called The Regrets, which is a female-fronted, uh, essentially punk band from America. But it's like... Not pop punk, but it's poppier than you would expect, like, heavy punk to be. Uh, but it's really good. Uh, check their single, uh, Come Through. That's really good. I think they're, nice. I think they're all, like, um, 20, 21 as well, so they're really young and really talented, and I hate them all. Um, <laughs> uh, what else? Uh, Heim, something to tell you. I was going to buy the new album because I really like the steps, uh, but that's been delayed, so I thought I'll get that one because I haven't got it yet, and I do quite like that as well. Uh, just quickly, the, um, the uh, what do you call it, the chords on the song, you might even know the one I mean because they're the best chords on the record. Um, 
Oh, that one's song. Fuck, what's it called? Uh, I can read the track list if you want. <laughs> yeah, please, please. Want you back. Nothing's wrong. Better for your love. Ready for you. Something to tell you. You never knew. Kept me crying. Ready for you. Ready for you. Ready for you. Uh, I wasn't ready for you. But the bit where it goes to the bridge um, is brilliant. Do you know the bit I mean? Where it, it turns around with those chords. Uh, I remember that being a good one, but I have to go back and recheck that, if that makes sense. That's one of the few moments, and I've had a few with, with different uh, songs, where the first time I heard it, I like I was driving and I just like screamed. I was like, oh, my God, that's so interesting. <laughs> it's so cool. Uh, I, had a, um, I had a similar thing with Muse Psycho the first time I heard it. I just heard everything about it. It was like, dude, I need to get my guitar. I actually have my guitar tuned to drop D and was trying to learn it by the end of my first time listening to it. <laughs> and then... Oh, I love those moments. And then the last thing I've listened to isn't really... isn't an album, but it is the BBC radio production of And Then There Were None, which, so far as I'm aware, follows the original book ending, and which I really, really enjoyed. Radio play. So that's like uh, actors in a studio recording as if it was a play, but is that right? Yeah, so it's just like radio drama. So nice actors acting on the radio with sound effects to make it sound like they're in the place. I'm a big Doctor Who fan. I love the uh, Doctor Who plays at Big Finish too. I'm listening to a lot of those at the moment. And I that sort of I always like audio drama because of that. So nice. like, I, it's a good thing to sort of just have on and then just play Minecraft on in the background or something. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Cool picks. What about yourself? Um, I've been really, really into the um the album Something Anything by Todd Rundgren recently. I've... Um, have you heard that at all? No, I've been looking for a second hand version, but uh, they're all hella expensive. Yeah, I had the same problem. Um, so I bit the bullet the other day, and I I just bought the download, you know, just off Amazon. Um, <laughs> and um, it's it's really good. It's it's definitely a grower. It's like there's a few songs because I I originally had just the very best of Todd Rundgren, um, just to kind of get into him, and it I was like okay, there's some cool songs on something anything which are crossovers from the best of, but then each song is just so good. There's this uh, I think the best song I'll send this to you later actually. It's only like three minutes long. It's called Wolfman Jack, and it's one of the coolest rock songs. It's just so um, well done. And I think it was written about the guy who um, used to host Midnight Special. You know, that American music show? Um, I don't know it that well. It's just on YouTube whenever you search, like, you know. It's not Austin City Limits, or is it specifically Midnight Special? Something tells me that the two might be the same thing. I, d- I don't know much about American music television. The only thing I know is Austin City Limits through watching that uh, Foo Fighters series. Uh, Sonic oh, right. I think this, this... Maybe that was a development of this. But anyway, the song's about Wolfman Jack. Um, and it's, it's so good. It's a very, very 70s album in, in all the right places, if you know what I mean. Um, I've been listening to um, uh, Nilsson Sings Newman, which is Harry Nilsson singing Randy Newman songs. That album is probably... Flawless, which I well, don't often say. It's an about amazing albums. singer paired with an amazing songwriter. Yeah, and Randy Newman plays piano on it too. Oh right. So and it's uh, so it's basically just piano and vocal. But um, Harry Nilsson went on on record as saying there are a hundred vocal overdubs on the record, 
and you can really tell that he really took probably weeks to stack these vocals and this is in like 1967 you know how many tracks would that have been recorded on I don't know. I think it's like a hundred over the entire record. Um, so I imagine it was a lot of, um, oh, right. uh, you know, re- rec- recording for Harry's and then bouncing it down to one track and when then you said doing it again again. When you said a hundred, I thought it was like all on one song. I thought it was going to be like a somebody to love situation where the take goes clear. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but but it's it's well worth a listen because he's um he's really good with that stuff. And uh, what was I going to say? Something else about that but anyway yeah so uh nilson sings newman uh i'll do one more um what else have i've been listening to i listened to uh revolver loads last week because you and i had a, had a chat didn't we about about what well, just got onto revolver for some reason yeah it's and it's my I've favorite been really album. digging it yeah it's it's whenever i say this it sounds like i didn't like it before which i obviously did but it's really grown on me in the last um just like this year basically um it's just got a really really good track listing and um and the way it's produced is very nice like everything sounds really good on it even though it's kind of like not lo-fi but like it not feels like, a... like an album of demos but like yeah demos yeah. that they spent way too long on yeah yeah exactly um so yeah, that's that's another one, and uh, it's, yeah, it's been nice. I mean, for the first couple of weeks of lockdown, I wasn't really listening to much music because I think I was like, I was quite like nervous, and like when I'm nervous, the first thing I, you know, I'm not one to just kind of like, oh, I'm gonna sit down for an evening with a record. I'm like, I'm quite agitated. So now that I've kind of like relaxed a little bit into this, um, it's been just a good time to stick on records and listen to them. Mm. That's good. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to try. Is. I was going to try and say something more intelligent there, and it uh, got away from me slightly. Me like it. One but, um, out yeah, of I one. I suppose that's um, a good place to sort of call it. Is it? I think so. Yeah. So, uh, should we do go and wrap up? Uh, yeah, let's do go and wrap up. So that's it for this episode of the Weekly Song Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, if you want to get in contact, if you've maybe got some suggestions for cool lyrics or lyrical ideas that we've missed out on, why not send us an email at weeklysongpodcast at gmail.com. We love receiving your emails. I think you've had a couple recently from uh, John Key, haven't you, Roger? Yeah, yeah. Shout out to John Key. John, um, he's been kind of... We've had a little correspondence going, actually, with the um, sort of songwriting tips episodes I put out. And I was saying to you before we started recording that because I was kind of like a bit dubious about me uploading those ones, the fact that, you know, I'm getting some cool feedback and it's actually helping uh, is uh, is really cool. So thanks, John, for your emails. It's been really cool. It is pretty, really cool. Pretty, really cool. Uh, yeah, pretty, really cool. So uh, you can leave us a like on SoundCloud. You can leave us uh, a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Spotify. Uh, you don't have to do these for any particular reason, but if you do, <laughs> if you want to support the show in any way, that's a good thing, a good way to do it. Uh, mm. Where can they find you, Roger? You can find me. Um, uh, Instagram is probably the best place at the moment um, because 
you know, uh, I'm posting the most there and it's kind of the place where I'm talking about the project and doing the most at the moment. Um, so that's at Roger Heathers is just my name. Give me a search. Um, also rogerheathers.com links to my band camp, um, where I, all of my, uh, albums and projects, uh, are on sale. The most um, recent being and... winter tape eight, how sweet and, uh, next week in Munster, if I'm correct. No, it'd be grim. Grim before that. Yeah. So like I've got my stuff up there. Um, which definitely check out. Um, P Green Boat as well. Um, project to do with was, Joe O'Neill. I was just about to mention that. <laughs> we uh, we got a new album out called An Unforgettable Luncheon, which seems like ages ago we put that out now, but it was only... When was it? February? Uh, must have been, yeah, because I was, uh, hadn't listened to it through most of the last run, then I listened to it towards the end of it. Um, just a lot has happened in the past few months. Um but, and where can they find you? Because you've got some stuff cooking. Uh, you can currently find me on SoundCloud, where I'm not putting up stuff yet. Um, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, yeah, if you just search Declan Kitchener, if you can't find that, go to Weekly Song Podcast SoundCloud, and then I'm in the following on there. Uh, nice. But yeah, I think that's about it uh, for this episode. I don't know if there's going to yeah. be another one next week. We always say this will be the last one, then we find something else to <laughs> podcast about. I love the fact yeah, that in the past three episodes, you have said, okay, this is going to be the last one for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think at this point, it's just going to be ambiguous. Like, if we can come up with something to talk about, we will. Album um, up. <laughs> that's actually not a bad one, but does it work for a podcast? <laughs> it's like dancing about architecture. All right, Frank Zappa. Um, but, yeah, thanks for listening, and um, hopefully we'll uh, speak to you soon. And, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. And uh, do take care and uh, get in touch if you want. Stay safe. Ta-ra. Ta-ra. <laughs>